Well, good morning. I invite you to turn to the passage that we read in John chapter 10. I want to begin with a couple of questions. Do you read your Bible? Most people say, well, of course I do. Uh, maybe not everyone does. Maybe some of the children don't read their Bibles. It's important to read God's Word. He's given us this revelation of His grace, of His love, and uh, we should read it. We should delight in that Word. Maybe some of the adults don't uh, read their Bibles either, and uh, again, I would urge you, you should. You need to read God's Word. Well, my second question, when you read it, do you read it intelligently? If you do, you'll realize that you can't read it all the same. You can't read the book of Revelation the same way you would read Genesis. Uh, you can't read the book of Acts the same as you would the Psalms. You can't read Romans the same way as you would Isaiah. There are different literary styles. We use the word uh, genre, <coughs> sort of technical word, G-E-N-R-E, -E S if you want, uh, there. Uh, parts of the Bible are <coughs> plain history or narrative, just recounting <coughs> what has happened and we uh, follow along with that. <coughs> Excuse me. Some of it is uh, poetry, psalms and others, wisdom literature, we speak of that. Some is prophecy. Some is uh, what we call apocalyptic. Uh, that is books like Revelation or parts of Zechariah when there's lots of uh, symbols, figures of speech there and you can't take it uh, literally called the, uh, the epistles. Even in the Gospels there is a, a variety uh, most of it, of course, is uh, historical, <coughs> narrative, recount, recount, recording, recounting what has happened. <coughs> but there are also figures of speech there. There are parables. There are allegories. Remember your English. Remember the difference between a simile and a, a metaphor. A simile is uh, a comparison using the word as or like. Uh, he's crafty as a fox. Uh, a metaphor is really an implied simile without using as or like. You might say or he's a brick or he's a, he's a lion, sort of fierce, almost dangerous kind of person, someone you tremble in their presence. Well, parables are extended similes. The kingdom of God is like. But then you get allegories uh, where without using the exact uh, comparison as or like, there's clearly uh, symbolic meaning there. And this chapter is uh, virtually all allegory. Every detail in it has, has meaning. Uh, you get a shepherd. You get sheep. Uh, there's a sheepfold. Uh, there uh, are thieves and robbers. Uh, there's a doorkeeper. Uh, the wolves, of course. So these things teach us uh, things. So we read it, we look, we're looking for an interpretation. For what do these things mean? Sometimes Jesus will tell us, uh, as he does in a couple of uh, things here. And in this chapter, there are 
two of the I am's. Hope you remember that I was started a series of the I am's. We looked at Jesus, uh, I am the bread of life. We looked at I am the light of the world. And last time, and it was quite a while ago, for various reasons, looked at John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am clear claim to deity on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here we have, uh, I am the good shepherd, but also before that we have, I am the door. And uh, that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning, uh, boys and girls. I am the door. What's a door? Well, it's an entrance way, isn't it, into a building, either to come in or to come out. When you came in this morning, you had to go at least three doors. There's the outside door there, then there's a little what you call it, a porch or a a lobby. Uh, Then you come into the bigger (coughs) vestibule there and then doors into this room too. When you go home, you'll go out through those same three uh, doors. (coughs) So we use doors uh, a lot. (coughs) So my first point is that Christ as the door is the way of salvation. See it in verse 7, I am the door of the sheep. And in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Go in and out and find pasture. So first, then, Jesus as the door is the way of salvation. Now again, we need to think carefully about biblical words. We perhaps tend to equate words of uh, like salvation, conversion, Becoming a Christian and say, well, those all mean the same thing. In in one sense, they do, but each one has its own particular use of words. Conversion means a a change. Literally, it means a change of mind, but it's a change of direction in your life. You're going one way, following your own ways, ways of sin, and you turn around, go the opposite direction when the Lord uh, does that work of grace uh, in your lives. And the word saved surely implies deliverance from danger. If you're in a ship and it's sinking, or maybe you're in a car wreck and you can't get out, uh, or you're drowning, or you're in a fire, uh, you need saving. If you're sitting on your porch reading a book, you don't need saving, do you? Uh, If you were sitting on your porch quietly reading a book one evening and a fire truck pulls out, uh, outside your door, pulls up there, and a fireman gets out and runs up to the porch, picks you up, carries you down to the sidewalk, and says, well, I've saved you. You say, well, I didn't need saving. The house wasn't on fire, wasn't in danger. Uh, so the word salvation doesn't really mean anything <clears throat> unless there's some kind of danger. The sheep wouldn't need the sheep pen, the fold, unless there was danger. There are wolves around. There were thieves and robbers that are spoken of in this uh, chapter. <coughs> when they go into the pen, <coughs> they are saved. They are safe. <coughs> now, how do you apply that to ourselves? Are we in danger? I'm sitting there this morning, you say, well, am I in any danger? Well, it's not an obvious danger. If a sheep is being chased by a wolf, there's a very obvious danger there, and it Glad to get to the, uh, uh, the sheep pen uh, before the wolf catches it. But there is a danger that we're in. There is a far greater danger <clears throat> than the sheep would seem to be in. And the danger is sin. 
far greater danger than uh, a sheep being chased by a, a wolf. Now, why is sin dangerous? Boys and girls might ask that. Why, why is sin dangerous? Well, because it can uh, harm us, uh, it can do a great deal of damage to us, it can destroy us, both in this life <clears throat> and in the life to come. Sin can harm us greatly in this life. I mean, there are obvious things. You get involved in crime. <clears throat> you might get arrested. You might get convicted. You might have to spend uh, time in jail. Uh, that's not very good, is it? You might get hooked on uh, drugs or alcohol, uh, and your life can be destroyed uh, through that. But, you know, all sin is destructive. Stealing is destructive. You say, well, how is sin, how is stealing destructive? Well, if you take someone's property or someone takes your property, you, uh, you lose something. It might be something serious. You have your car stolen. You hear all kinds of these carjackings in recent uh, uh, weeks around Toronto. Uh, but if you lost your car, that's a, a, a big thing. Some might lose uh, a jewelry or a, a lot of money. It might be something that's very special or precious to you. Uh, so it can damage someone else's life if you steal from them. If someone steals from you, it can uh, damage uh, your life. But it is dangerous, it's harmful. <clears throat> Lying is harmful. Very easy to lie, isn't it? Uh, maybe you did something, uh, maybe it was an accident, but you did something that uh, you shouldn't have done, and Dad asks, did you do that? No, Daddy. Well, it's very easy to lie, but you know, Daddy's probably going to know. And if you lie uh, more than once, your parents will soon know that you lie. And the danger of that is that even if you tell the truth, they won't know that you're telling the truth. So when you lie to someone else, it, it destroys that relationship. It spoils the trust between them. So all sin is destructive. Uh, pride, jealousy, anger, uh, all these things are uh, destructive. Sex before marriage is destructive to relationships. Uh, we need to recognize that. So it's destructive in terms of human relationships. But what does sin do as far as our relationship to God is concerned? God hates sin. God must punish sin. So we need to face up to that. And we sin. Sin is harmful. It's destructive. But if sin is harmful and destructive in this life, it will certainly destroy us in the world to come if we're not saved from it. Paul speaks in 2 Thessalonians 1.9 of everlasting destruction. If you are still in your sins... When you die, you'll perish. Very easy to overlook that little word, perish, in John 3.16, isn't it? Such a wonderful verse, best-known verse in the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Wonderful to be saved. Wonderful to have eternal life. But that word that's in there, if we don't believe, we don't experience the joy of eternal life, we'll perish. You see, death 
is not the end. Uh, there's a judgment. It's pointed to man wants to die. After that, the judgment. And if we die uh, in our sins, if we're not right with God, we'll hear those dreadful words, depart, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Sin is destructive, both in this life and in the world to come. If the first aspect of sin's destructive power doesn't grip you, doesn't scare you, the second one certainly should. But Christ is a saviour from sin. Wonderful, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved. There is salvation from sin in every aspect. Uh, the door represents that way to safety, a way to escape the ravages of sin, a way to escape the penalty of sin. Uh, remember Jesus, the name given to him, to Joseph, before he was born, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He's a savior from sin. And uh, if we're just looking for deliverance from hell, we're perhaps falling short of understanding what that means. A.W. Pink wrote a, a tract, uh, A Fourfold Salvation. Now I've seen several tracts with similar titles there, but Pink begins in a way I've seen no one else begin. His first point is Christ delivers us from the pleasure of sin. The pleasure of sin. Christ takes away our delight in sin. I know sometimes we're ensnared, we go into it with relish, but when we come to our senses, we, we loathe it. We hate it. We hate ourselves when we fall into sin. But praise God, the Lord takes away that delight in sin. We, uh, we hate it. He saves us from the penalty of sin. First Thessalonians 1.10, he delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus delivers us from God's wrath. God is angry with sinners. But if we're saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, we are delivered from that wrath. We don't need to fear the anger, the wrath of God. Then he saves us in the power of sin. Now that's not perfect, never perfect in this life. But praise God, he does save us from the dominion of sin. Sin shall not be your master, writes the Apostle Paul uh, to the Romans. We're not mastered by sin. Yes, we're tripped up, we fall, we know that daily, hourly, minutely. Uh, we sin in a word or thought or, or, or deed, but praise God, it doesn't rule over us. We're delivered from sin's power, even in this life, by his grace. And then, of course, eventually he'll deliver us, he'll save us from the very presence of sin. It's one of the most wonderful things to look forward to in glory, isn't it? Some of us are experiencing some aches and pains at the moment. Uh, uh, we may look forward to the time when we're free from that, but that's relatively insignificant compared to being delivered from sin. We'll see Jesus face to face. We'll be like him without sin won't have any trace of sin in glory. And all this is through Christ, the door. How clear that is. 
And so I ask you, have you entered? Boys and girls, maybe some of the adults, have you entered that door? Are you saved? Have you seen your need, your danger, and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ and entered through him you need to enter? Well, how do you enter? Well, you enter by faith, you trust in him. There's also the question of asking. Uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Christ is already, always ready to let you in. You don't sort of knock at the door or ask him and say, well, think about it. No, he's promised, if you ask, to let you in. If you come, if you seek, you'll find. If you knock, there's some sense of persistence there, urgency, uh, he'll open the door. He'll let you in. You don't need to walk the aisle. If you see your danger, sin, confess it, you'll know forgiveness. Simply trust in the death and merits of the Son of God. So Christ is the door, way to be saved. Secondly, Christ is the only door, the only way to be saved. You don't have several doors. Here's the door, you go through Jesus. There's another door, you go through Muhammad. Another door, you go through uh, Confucius, uh, Buddha. Uh, No, there's only one door. Some do try other routes. Look at verse 1. Uh, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Some do try other ways, but there's only one way by the door. I hope you're familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, but if you remember, uh, soon after Christian has entered the door, he's come to the cross, his burden has fallen off his back, he's been clothed uh, with that... uh, those new garments, picture of his righteousness in Christ. He's been given that scroll, uh, indication of, of assurance, and he's walking along that straight and narrow way. And suddenly two guys climb over the wall just in front of him. Their names are formalist and hypocrisy. And he enters into conversation. Where do they come from? And uh, why didn't you come in through the door? Oh, it's too far from us. But anyway, we're in the way, the same as you. What's the difference? Well, they didn't have the special clothes. They didn't have the scroll. And it wasn't long before they both perished. There is only one door. Get a similar truth and another of the I am's that we'll be looking at in a few months' time. Uh, John 14, 6. So I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way. Now, of course, at this point, many will part company from us. They may agree, well, yes, Jesus is a way, uh, but not the only way. I remember looking at a United Church Sunday School paper a good many years ago now. I think it was an Easter uh, time paper. uh, And it said, well, for us, uh, Jesus is the way to heaven, to the Father. But to Muslims, they go through uh, Muhammad and his teachings about uh, Allah and uh, through Buddhists, uh, a different way. You know, where they're saying 
exactly what I'm suggesting is utterly wrong. Uh, there are different ways to get to heaven, different ways uh, to be saved. But no, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And Peter echoes those words in uh, <clears throat> one of his sermons in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other way. And so someone will say, well, isn't that presumptuous? With all the sincere uh, people of different religious beliefs, how, we can, how can we say we're the only ones right? That's a good question. A very reasonable question, uh, is it not? <clears throat> Let me ask another question. Was Jesus a good man and a great prophet? Many will, of course, say, yes, he was. Even Muslims say that. Muslims have all kinds, you get different numbers, but one I was looking at, 24 prophets they have, and people like Adam and uh, Abraham and Moses and David are all prophets according to Muslims, and uh, Jesus is, and John the Baptist, uh, all their prophets. Yes, he's a great prophet, he's a good man. But wait a minute, he claimed to be God. You saw the last one, John 8, 58, before Abraham was... I am. There's no clearer claim to deity than that. Claiming to be Yahweh. The great I am set forth in Exodus uh, 3 uh, for the first time. If he was not what he claimed, he was not good. He was a terrible imposter. He was a liar. He was a hypocrite. If Christianity is built upon Christ, it stands or falls on his integrity. If Jesus wasn't all that he claimed to be, he was a liar. He was a hypocrite. Either he's the only way or he's no way at all. There is no middle road to that. He's either a wonderful teacher, the Son of God, the way to the Father, uh, or else he's a phony. There's no third route uh, there. Let's analyze a little further the claim that Jesus is the only way. How are people to be saved? How are they to get to heaven? Well, theoretically, there are two possibilities. They can achieve it by their own way. We can do our own thing, we keep God's commandments, be obedient to him and earn salvation that way, or else someone else does it for us. The Bible spells those out as the way of works and the way of grace. By works, we earn salvation. By our behavior, by our religious activities, by our obedience to the uh, uh, the scriptures there and the things that are set out for us as the right way uh, to live. And by grace, salvation is provided freely, not earned, given to us as a free gift. Now, all world religions 
accept Christianity are systems of works. You can study them. I've read an article of someone who studied, forget how many, world religious books. He said in no one else, in no other book but the Bible, was there a way of salvation clearly spelled out. And that is by grace. There was no hope of getting to heaven uh, in any of those world religions. They, they hope somehow you can make it if you do your best, uh, but it doesn't work. They say if you live a good enough life, uh, you can uh, get to heaven. Uh, you can achieve a state of nirvana. Uh, you might be reincarnated in a, a higher state. This life you might be a, a frog, and if you're a good frog, well, you might be reincarnated as a giraffe or a lion, uh, something like that. You can go up by various steps through being reincarnated. And sadly, many professing Christian groups, in essence, have systems of works, or else they mix things up. I was talking to a lady once, and I said, do you, do you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? Oh, yes. So then if you died, you believe you go to heaven. Well, I don't know whether I'm good enough. That's kind of mixing things up, isn't it? It's a bit like what situation in Galatians or Seventh-day Adventists, sort of a mixture of works uh, and grace. Uh, no, can we possibly be good enough to earn salvation? Think about this, boys and girls. How good would we have to be to earn salvation? Very good, I think you'd have to agree. I think Paul spells it out beautifully in Galatians 3.10, <clears throat> where he says, All who rely on works of the law, that is, keeping God's commandments to earn salvation, they're under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. All right, two alternatives. You can be blessed, you can keep all God's commandments, otherwise you're under a curse. What do we do to avoid that curse? Well, we have to abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, you have to keep all God's commandments all the time, your whole life, uh, to, for it even to be theoretically possible to earn your salvation. Uh, who does that? No one, of course, because we're all sinners. Uh, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory uh, of God. So there's no hope in uh, achieving salvation by our own works. absolutely impossible. The only hope is a salvation earned for us and given freely. And that is the Christian faith. Salvation through Christ Jesus paid it all. He took our sin. He took the punishment for his people. Uh, he's the only Savior. No one else could save us. No one else would save us. There is no other way. No other door. Again, I ask, are you trusting in your own works or in Christ for salvation? question I like to ask to people when I'm not sure where they stand. I ask them, if you die today, do you believe you go to heaven? If they say yes, then I ask a second question. If you stood at the gate of heaven 
and the Lord said to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Long ago I asked someone that. <laughs> response at that time was, well, I, I've lived a good life. I've gone to church, uh, tried to be obedient uh, to God. Praise God, that person finally came to realize the truth uh, of grace. Uh, but uh, so many people are relying on their own works to get to heaven. No, only Christ is the way. And my third point is that Christ is the way into the sheepfold. Now, you could say the way to the Father, the way to heaven, but the context is the, the sheepfold, the sheep pen. In verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. In and out of the sheepfold, of course, that salvation is viewed in the, the sheepfold. What's a sheepfold? Well, it's the place where the other sheep are. Uh, if you like, it's the church. You say, which church? Church of Rome, of course, says they're the only true uh, church. No, the church is a company of believers. The church is occasionally, very rarely in the New Testament, uh, used of all God's believers, uh, all children of God. Uh, Christ loved the church, gave himself for it. That would be all believers in all ages. But almost always the word church in the Bible is used of the local church, gathering of believers in a local uh, location, gathering together company of true believers. Salvation is not through the church, but salvation brings us into the church. The door leads into the sheepfold. I think it's important that we uh, see that. It doesn't lead into a large field where we run about on our own. Uh, it leads us into the sheepfold where we are with other sheep. And uh, we love to be there. We develop that relationship with the other uh, sheep. Join the other sheep. There is, of course, these days uh, quite a widespread evil amongst evangelicals, a tendency towards uh, individualism, uh, isolationism. Uh, some jump around from church to church. Others go nowhere. And uh, with COVID, that's uh, increased with people not going anywhere. And, of course, one thing that makes the latter uh, plausible is that they can find uh, lots of good programs on TV or on the internet there and uh, hear the Bible taught and preached. And uh, in the past, there were some Christians who didn't attend a church. They usually acknowledged that they were wrong. They weren't getting taught. Uh, they weren't giving of their uh, funds, their substance there. Uh, now they can feel justified. All kinds of services on the TV and especially on the uh, internet, a variety of styles of worship, plenty of offerings, no lack of places to give you money uh, in those uh, things. And without commenting on the quality of the programs, and a few are good, it's encouraging people to abandon the local church. Now, I realize there are always some who can't get out through health, and it's a blessing for them to be able to watch online or follow services on the internet or maybe even TV uh, there. Uh, but for most of us, the, uh, the door leads into the sheepfold. We should be 
amongst God's people. We should delight to be with God's people. It should be that commitment to the local church. We go in, as Jesus says here, go in by faith. Go in believe by baptism. That's that ordinance that sort of commits us to the local church. We are not a law to ourselves. We need teaching. We need fellowship. We need to pray with other believers. And we need others to watch over us. I think that's very important. For the Reformers, there were three conditions for a group of people to be a church. Three sine qua nons, as they would put it there. Three conditions. Preaching of the Word, the observance of the ordinances, and church discipline. And by that, they don't mean that uh, every time you put a foot wrong there, we get wrapped over the knuckles, or people are there to call us on the, on the carpet and uh, challenge us. No, it covers the whole area of church order. Uh, there are church officers, elders, there are deacons. And I think it really uh, implies a membership. I know there are always some that say, well, you can't find in anywhere in the Bible where it says uh, we should be members. Uh, no, there's no verse that says you must become a member of the local church. But I think the implications are there. Uh, we know there were lists in the early church. There were lists of widows, for example, who were supported by the church. See that in First Timothy chapter 5, uh, I believe. Uh, there were uh, elections in the early church. Acts 6, they called the, uh, the, the congregation to elect seven men to serve tables. We believe that's the beginning of uh, deacons uh, in the church. Uh, well, who would be qualified to elect those people? Surely they, they didn't go out in the middle of Jerusalem and say, now we're going to have an election. Uh, who wants to be involved there? No, there were a group of people. New converts were added to them. So there was clearly a body of people that were recognized uh, as being authorized, if you like, or qualified to choose church officers and be involved there. So I think we can justify church membership uh, from Scripture. <clears throat> so we go in to the church. We also go out. Jesus says you go in and go out. Uh, there is service. There is evangelism. There's different ways in which we serve the Lord, we get involved in the church, we want to use the gifts that God has given us uh, to serve others, to serve the Lord, to honor Him, to reach out to uh, the unsaved. It's important. And uh, most efforts should go out from the church. I realize there are organizations that are not centered on a local church, good groups like Atwell Center there, uh, but uh, the individuals in it will be involved in local churches. It's nice if organizations can be centered on a local church. But they find pasture here in verse 9. Uh, that which feeds our souls, that which nourishes our inner being, that which unites our hearts together in love. Now you often hear, well, you don't have to be a member of a local church to be a Christian, and that's theoretically true. But there's something seriously wrong with those who have no desire to meet with God's people 
in his appointed way. And so I conclude. Another question. Are you in the sheepfold? <clears throat> Do you enjoy the company of the other sheep? Being with God's people, is that more important to you than being with a group of unbelievers, whether it's family or anyone else? Uh, do you delight to be with the people of God? Above all, we might ask, do you enjoy being where the shepherd dwells, where he leads and feeds his sheep? Is he your shepherd? Is he the door through which you've entered to experience salvation? trust that will be true in your life if it's not already let's pray Father we rejoice in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ thank you that he is the good shepherd he's also the door the way of salvation the way into the sheepfold and we just thank you Father that Christ is all in all to us he's everything in the church should be everything in our individual lives. And we pray indeed that you'll enable us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For those who are here this morning, Father, who have not entered that door, who have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray you would work by your Spirit to draw them to the Savior. Hear us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And our closing hymn, O Precious Words, that Jesus said, The soul that comes to me, I will in no wise cast him out, whoever he may be. In verse 2, O Precious Words, that Jesus said, Behold, I am the door, and all that enter in by me have life forevermore. <laughs>